0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, the Biden administration is about to hit the one-year mark. What has President Biden been able to accomplish over the last year? Fortunately, not nearly as much as he wanted. But even as failure closes in on President Biden, he is doubling down on his leftist agenda. We'll talk with Virginia Congressman Bob Good as he joins me here in studio in just a moment. And more questions being raised by the Fauci files, the emails obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request. Caroline Downey with the National Review joins me with a deep dive into what appears to be a cover up in the origin about the origins of the coronavirus. If this is true, the most obvious question is why? We'll explore that and more. And despite not having the support, Senate, Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer says he is moving forward in the Democrats' effort to take over elections, no matter what. And if Republicans choose to continue the filibuster, their filibuster of voting rights legislation, we must consider and vote on the rule changes that are appropriate and necessary to restore the Senate and make voting legislation possible. Will he succeed? We'll get the latest from... South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds a little later here on Washington Watch. And in an honest moment, the co-owner of the NBA team, the Golden State Warriors, Chamath Palihapitiya, who is also the founder and CEO of Social Capital, says yesterday that nobody cares what's happening to the Uyghurs. Nobody
2: cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, OK? You,
1: you bring it up because you really what? care. And I think it's nice that you cares? care.
2: The rest of us don't care. I'm just telling you a very hard ugly personally don't care? I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay. Of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay. Of all the things that I care
1: about, it is below my line. Disappointing. He did go on to list the things he does care about, climate change and supply chain disruptions. We'll talk with my uh, good friend, Nuri Turkle, chairman of the Board of Uyghur Human Rights Project, later here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you happen to miss anything, it's all archived there later at TonyPerkins.com. And if you are with us on our two-year journey through the Bible, stand on the word. Today's passage our verse from the passage is uh from chapter 41 verses 39 and 40 then pharaoh said to joseph inasmuch as god has shown you all this there is no one as discerning and wise as you you shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word only in regard to the throne will i be greater than you it's an amazing story it's an amazing story joseph went from prisoner to prime minister in a day but this preparation that God had him go through took years of difficulty and disappointment. I encourage you to join us in that two-year journey through the Bible. Go to frc.org Bible. All right, this Thursday will mark President Biden's first year in office. And needless to say, it has not been a good year for the president and his party. On Friday, the Republican Study Committee released a four-page memo titled, Biden Year One. A Presidency in Crisis, that outlines 10 areas where President Biden's priorities have created crises. The border, inflation, education, the supply chains, uh, crime, big tech, China, Middle East, Afghanistan, and faith in our elections. Here with me to talk about uh, all of those areas, but specifically the area of education, is our good friend, Congressman Bob Good of Virginia is a member of the House Freedom Caucus, also a member of the Education Labor Committee and the Budget Committee. He represents the 5th Congressional District of Virginia, where the issue of education, quite frankly, helped propel the state's newly elected uh, sworn in governor into office. Uh, Bob, good to see you.
0: Great to be with you, Tony. Thanks for having
1: me. Well, thanks for uh, coming in studio to to be with us today. Absolutely. All right. Your take on uh, President Biden's first year. We're coming up to the end of his first year.
0: This is a president that most of us on our side certainly thought was going to be a bad president. You know, obviously I didn't support him when he ran, but I think most of us probably underestimated how good he would be at doing a bad job for the country. This is a president that makes Carter look competent and makes Obama look moderate.
1: When you look specifically at what's happening, we went through some of those lists that the uh, some of those items on the list from the Republican Study Committee. I mean, you look at Afghanistan, you look at uh, what's happening right now with Russia on the border of Ukraine. Uh, you've got uh, the fourth missile being fired by North Korea. I mean, we're perceived as being weak, uh, unable to accomplish anything domestically, uh, foreign policies in shambles. But what is this administration focusing on? Uh, I just saw last week where the Department of Education is going after a Christian university, the uh, Lincoln University in Illinois, uh, based on a transgender complaint. I mean, what's the priority of this administration?
0: Democrats in this administration in particular, along with their allies in the House, uh, they are doubling down on their failed policies. There's not one issue, not one area, not one policy where you can point to success that would validate the election results from 2020. Democrats can't point to one thing that's working, one area where he's doing well. I would submit just the border crisis alone, never in the history of the country has a president intentionally, willfully done more to harm his own country than this president has to the United States just with the border crisis alone. Is
1: there an intention, is there, is that intentional?
0: I do believe that they think that either Americans are too dumb to realize how well their policies are working, so they're doubling down for that reason, or they're just trying to do as much harm as they can with the time that they have left. When it comes to the border, they are globalists. They don't believe in American exceptionalism. They want to flood our country with illegal aliens uh, to change the culture and change the dynamics and to change the voting bloc.
1: Well, when you see New York allowing illegal immigrants, those who are not uh, citizens—well, I shouldn't say illegal immigrants. They're they're not citizens— Uh, uh, the ability to vote now—it is just—it's uh, not in federal elections. They can't do that, but certainly that is the nose of the camel under the tent. Because if you if you allow this in these large cities across America, eventually there will be a clamoring for them to vote in federal elections as well.
0: Yeah, when you have a, an administration that promised amnesty for illegal aliens who are here to begin with, now has open borders, allowing millions to flood across. Just in his first year, two million alone—the first year does not allow a voter ID to be the law of the land, and at the same time wants to uh, – uh, we don't have to have proof of citizenship even to vote in this country. And then you've got the test case in New York where you've got, hey, let's go ahead and let illegal immigrants right. vote now.
1: I mean it's – I, I think it's intentional. I think that the, the border is open with the hope of flooding new voters for uh, Democratic candidates, uh, whether initially it's in local elections, but eventually I think they want to do that uh, nationwide. These are unregistered Democrats. They're coming from 160 different countries.
0: There's 2 million apprehensions at the border this year. That doesn't count the tens of thousands of gotaways, those who, who uh, evaded a- apprehension at the border.
1: So, Congressman Good, let's talk about, uh, I, w- I want to get to the education issue. You're on the Education Committee. Not, that's not a place many Republicans want to be because mm-hmm. it's been dominated by the left for so long, but silver lining there. We're seeing pay, people pay attention to that. Parents, it was a big issue in Virginia. But before we get to that, one final thing on the, the issue of immigration. If the Republicans are able to, retain, to regain the majority, which appears to be, I mean, quite possible. I mean, I think it, the Republicans really have to mess up not to gain, regain the majority. What can Congress do to address the border issue?
0: And the border issue ties right into education, too, Tony, because as these illegal aliens come in who don't speak our language, the school systems, which are already overtaxed, under-resourced to begin with, are having to try to... To, to, to try to teach students in their native language, right. which how the school systems have the resources to do that. But there's so much opportunity costs and resource costs with the border being shut down now. There's billions and billions of dollars of costs being by the materials that have been left behind. We've got border wall that's already paid for. They weren't allowed to complete. So what Congress can do is to, is to cut, down, cut funding for not give President Biden the funding that he wants unless he reinstates the border wall.
1: So basically using the purse strings We do control the
0: power of the purse. We've got to be willing to shut down the government in order to use the leverage that we will have with the majority in the House, even if we don't have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and to force this president from a funding standpoint. Uh,
1: I think the Republicans would have to make their priorities very clear up front. That's right. uh, Because your window of opportunity is going to be in the early days of having the majority in Congress. Given this president's unfavorable ratings with the American people, I think the – uh, momentum would be with the new Congress.
0: Yes, he is a weak president now. He will be a terribly diminished and even weaker president a year from now when he has lost the majority and hopefully in both houses, but certainly in the House of Representatives.
1: Congressman Good, let's talk education. Uh, by the way, you are absolutely right. It does tie into the issue of immigration because it, there was a time in our country when education played the role of assimilating right. uh, immigrants into our country. Legal immigrants who came in, they were assimilated into uh, to what it meant to be an American by being taught what America was about. Uh, now it's more of a—we're we're actually, instead of the many becoming one, uh, we're, we are fragmenting our society, and there's probably no place that's played a greater role in that than in education
0: yes and you can look at from from what happens with immigrants when they come in and they're not patriotically assimilating learning our language embracing our culture embracing our values as uh, legalized citizens, then what they do is they go to pockets where those who are like them from their countries are, and they live there in sort of a tribal fashion, uh, separate from the rest of the greater, larger community. That's happened with Afghanistan, the 120 right. Afghanis that we brought over. Here. As they leave the bases or the place that we've housed them, they go to where there's high population of Afghanis because they want to live that way right. and embrace that culture instead of a larger American You know, culture. I would
1: think, you know, based on what's happening in our schools, some of these people who come risk their lives to come here, whether it's illegally or whatever, but they come here if they go through our education system i would think they would think why did i bother coming here Uh, because because what they're being taught in our schools is to hate this country that there's nothing special I guess the one thing that gives me hope about people who are risking all to come to this country is that there's something still special about America that attracts people.
0: It's still There's no plan B for the world other than America. There's, no, there's not another country in the history of the world that's given more opportunity to people from all races, all ethnicities, all nationalities to advance themselves, to better themselves. There's no other beacon of freedom. There's no other country that's freed more people, uh, evangelized more people, fed more people than the United States of America.
1: We've seen education in Virginia really be the propelling force behind the new governor, Governor Youngkin. Um, Is this going to be an issue that... Sweeps across the country in this coming election?
0: When the Democrat Party is the party of closing schools and remote learning instead of in-person learning, mandates where we're forcing kids to wear masks all day, which is paramount to child abuse, forcing children to be vaccinated in order to attend school, teaching radical CRT and racist ideology in our schools, as well as radical transgender policies that are harmful to children, I think the silver lining from the pandemic, as parents have learned what their kids are being taught, you're going to see election results like Virginia.
1: So, will Congress? be able to address that if and when the Republicans regain the majority?
0: If we have the courage to do right, we'll certainly have that opportunity, and I hope to be part of that on the Education Committee.
1: Is that a funding issue? What what, what will drive those changes at the state level?
0: Well, what we need to do is diminish the federal government's role in education and allow the states and the localities to do their job. It shouldn't be coming from the federal level. Uh, I would, I'm in, in favor, as you probably know, in abolishing the Department of Education, but at least if we can't do that, let's diminish the federal mandates, let's diminish the federal intrusion, Let's and certainly cut off things like the Biden administration wants to make – uh, condition federal funding on teaching CRT ide- ideology right. in the schools.
1: You know, I, when I've looked at this uh, multiple times and it fluctuates, when you look at the amount of money that actually comes from the federal government to the local schools, you think it would be like 50 percent mm-hmm. of the funding, but it's uh, it, it vacillates between 9 and maybe 11 percent or less, depending on the administration. But yet... It comes not with strings, but ropes, with cables, right. because the federal government, for that little bit of money, tells them what to do. It's absolutely
0: not worth it. The numbers that I've seen is actually 6 or 7% on average. So, right, roughly half the funding comes from the local community, half of it comes from the state. very small amount comes from the federal government. The States and locales ought to say, federal government, take your money, keep it. We don't want your mandates. We don't want your intrusion. It's bad enough to have your state capital telling you how to teach in your local right. community. You certainly don't want Washington doing
1: it. You're absolutely right, Bob Good, always great to uh, talk with you. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you, Tony. And God keep, bless you. Keep up the fight. Appreciate the work you're doing. All right, thank you. All right, folks, stick with us. We're going to be uh, talking with uh, Senator Rounds of South Dakota next as we take a look at what's happening in the Senate. That's coming up next here on Washington Watch. do away.
4: to six seven
5: seven
1: four two. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website TonyPerkins.com. All right, the U.S. Senate started debating the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights. Advancement Act today, one day after Democrats failed to meet their self-imposed deadline to take over elections by Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The eyes of the nation will be watching what happens this week in the United States Senate. Just a few days removed from what would have been Dr. Martin Luther King
5: Jr.'s 93rd birthday, the Senate has begun the debate on
1: the Freedom to Vote Act, the john lewis voting rights advancement act yes uh, americans will be watching but i don't think they're going to see what mr schumer wants them to see join me now to uh, give us an update on what is happening on capitol hill in the senate chamber is senator mike rounds of south dakota who serves on five committees in the senate including the armed services committee and the committee on banking housing and urban affairs senator welcome back to the program tony thank you very much for the opportunity all right. Give us the latest on this effort by Democrats to take over elections, and if they fail at that, trying to change the Senate rules. Yeah.
5: Look, in 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 the uh, United States Senate, it has always taken a consensus of at least sixty of the one hundred in order to move legislation forward. It's very clear that these two particular pieces of legislation are not necessarily designed to uh, make it easier to vote. But what they are doing is 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 saying that they think that uh, the federal government should dictate what the states do with regard to their voting laws. Just as an example, and these are specific examples, they want felons to have the right to vote. Now, I think if the states want felons to have the right to vote, and they can justify it to their local communities, but you're not finding the vast majority of states wanting felons to be able to have the right to vote. Second of all, they want to make um, they want to make the election day a federal holiday. That would cost millions of dollars and basically you're going to look at a lot of your private your private businesses looking at additional costs involved in in, in that. Furthermore, uh, they want motor voter registration. They want every Department of Motor Vehicles to have to register people as voters. Motor vehicle registration isn't designed to, to lay out and to inspect and find out whether or not you're a citizen of the United States. but Nonetheless, they want that to be done automatically when you register your vehicle or registered as a driver in a state. They also want same-day registration. In other words, they want somebody to show up at the polls, say that they are a a registered voter, and be able to vote, and without a valid ID. Uh, Look, these are items that most of the states uh, have looked at and have said, look, we want voter integrity, we want election integrity. We don't think there's any reason why the federal government should get involved and try to change what constitutionally our founding fathers thought was a very important issue that should be resolved at the state level, as close to the local folks as possible. But once again, since it does not fall into the, uh, the guidelines of some of our more liberal colleagues here, and they think that um, that uh, uh, they want to liberalize these, and they don't like the fact that states even like New York don't like what uh, they're proposing here. They want to mandate it on every single state in the union. It's wrong. They know they don't have the votes to to be able to do this, but uh, they want to use it as an excuse to end what we call the filibuster or the requirement for consensus. We have to have at least 60 people agree to end debate and to move on to vote on a particular bill.
1: Yeah, we've talked about uh, the role, the critical role that the Senate plays in bringing really the nation to consensus as it rushes through the House and oftentimes the passion of an executive uh, but the Senate is where you have to reach consensus so that you keep that uh, political equilibrium. But this would, this would actually do undo what many states have had in place over the last several years, uh, in particular even this last year where 19 states have adopted various uh, reform measures to elections to ensure that it's easy to vote but uh, difficult to cheat – so the process that is underway right now, as I understand it at Senator Rounds, is that they took a, house, a bill that was over in the House. They put these two uh, bills in it, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Amendment Act, into one bill. They sent it back over to the Senate, which circumvents the, the first 60-vote threshold. So this moves directly to the Senate floor, avoiding that initial filibuster. There will be debate. But then before you can have a vote, if I'm not mistaken, Senator, there has to be that 60-vote threshold again. So we'll have a debate, but unlikely to ever have a vote on the bill. Is that correct?
5: That's correct. And, and, and what they've done, and, and this is a, a part of the rules in the Senate, if you have a bill which has already been ping-ponged back and forth between the House and the Senate, it makes it appear as though since most, most bills don't totally change and, and become gutted with everything that was in the bill taken out and all new parts put back in, but that's what's happened in this particular case they brought the bill back over it's, it, it was a bill that had left the house came to the senate went back to the house and now it's coming back to the senate brand new and it includes these two these two pieces of legislation that uh, would change the way that, that elections are held in the United States today when they get to the senate now it's on the floor it's being debated right now but they can't stop debate without filing cloture and by that it means having an agreement that at least 60 people believe that they're ready to move to a vote. That's the protection which is found within the Senate to, as our founding fathers said, slow things down, cool off the heat and passion of the House, and give everybody an opportunity to really reflect on whether or not this is good for the entire country. But, you know, Tony, what's really interesting on this, two provisions that that, uh, the Democrats' bill would force nationwide, same-day registration and no-excuse absentees, They were just taken to the citizens of New York as ballot measures last November. They both lost. The question is, is why are Democrats trying to reject the election results in states, including New York, overrule local officials and then overturn the will of the voters? And and yet this is what we find right now.
1: So when this vote, uh, when they're not able to have the vote because they're not able to to end debate, is that going to be the trigger for the attempt to change the rules in the Senate?
5: There are several places where they could attempt to change the rules, that is one of them. They'll have the vote to begin with, and then once the vote fails, because we have both Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin has said they will not vote with their colleagues on the other side of the aisle, they believe the filibuster should stay in place, they'll vote no. And when that happens, then probably Senator Schumer will challenge the ruling of the chair that the vote failed, and he will ask for a vote on the filibuster itself, meaning changing it from 60 votes to 50, 51 votes. And that'll Good. be the key vote. it
1: be an interesting week, and in the, uh, the Senate will be watching it uh, very closely. Senator Rounds, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Always great to talk with you.
5: Thank you for the opportunity, and stay tuned.
1: All right, we will. We will be watching. And, uh, folks, stay tuned, because on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about the Fauci files. Was the source of the coronavirus known? Was it covered up? We're going to talk about it next. Don't go away.
6: What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious
7: Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications.
1: This is Washington Watch, and I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Last week, Republicans on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform made public unredacted excerpts of emails that reveal not only what Dr. Anthony Fauci was aware of with regard to the coronavirus and when, but also the efforts that were made to maintain the narrative that he and his cohorts were pushing. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but... Last week, Senator Rand Paul noted during a Senate hearing this very fact. You deny, you deny, but the emails tell the truth of this. Now, this wasn't the only time. Your desire to take down those who disagree with you didn't stop with Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. You conspired with Peter Daszak, who you communicated with privately, and other members of the scientific community that wrote opinion pieces for Nature. Five of them signed a, a paper for Nature, an opinion piece. 17 signed a paper that called it conspiracy theory, the idea that the virus could have originated in the lab. So what else have the unredacted emails revealed to the public? Joining me now to uh, talk about this is Caroline Downey, news writer for National Review Online, who has been tracking this. Caroline, welcome to Washington Watch.
8: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay, so kind of give us the timeline here. Going back to January of 2020, what did these emails that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins were involved in, what did these emails tell us?
8: So this chain of correspondence is from a conference call of experts from February 2020, which is when the pandemic erupted, as we all know. And what they really reveal is the extent to which dissent, was suppressed or outright hidden by the scientific establishment on the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Here we have a virologist, immunologist and a biologist who all explicitly say in their summary of this conference, in their sort of analysis, uh, their observations of the chemical makeup of the virus. And they all conclude that there was a very peculiar feature of it that suggested engineering that was gain of function and what that means is that there was no scientific consensus really at the pivotal moment and yet despite this disagreement internally among all these researchers fauci and collins the pivotal players here who were the spokespeople for our scientific community at the time dismissed the lab leak hypothesis as conspiracy and that's what the American public received was that narrative.
1: So just so our listeners and viewers are very clear on this, this was a small group people that actually, uh, if I'm not mistaking, many of these uh, experts received funding from the federal government. So these were people that Fauci... Would be would be colleagues, uh, people who know what they're talking about. So this isn't random people that happen to see, send emails. These are people that know this stuff. And as you said, they pointed to this uh, particular feature. I think at the fur and cleavage site, which suggested the the gain of function engineering. But if I'm not mistaken, Caroline, on the timeline, two days after this information was presented, is when we saw this push for an explanation by Dr. Fauci and others that uh, there was a this was a natural uh, occurrence that uh, there was what it would appear to be from those emails, an intentional effort to direct attention away from the possibility of this being specifically engineered.
8: Yes, the timeline is very telling. Just one month after this correspondence uh, reportedly happened, in March 2020, Dr. Francis Collins of the National Institutes of Health called the lab leak theory outrageous, and then just shortly after, um, Dr. Fauci told National Geographic, which is very you know reputable magazine, that COVID quote could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. So they wanted to put this to bed.
1: Why? Why? What is the motivation? And I'm I'm probably asking you to speculate, but what could be the possible motives here for them not just following the science and the facts?
8: Well, the idea that it originated not in a seafood market or in nature, but in a laboratory that was in China um, could suggest to some that Dr. Fauci and uh, Dr. Collins wanted to maintain that scientific relationship with China. And uh, it's there's some culpability there that they probably did not want to be uh, exposed.
1: Could it also be the fact that it appears, and this is one of the issues that Rand Paul and others have made, that we, the U.S. government, has funded this gain-of-function research in China in the lab?
8: Yes, yes. And I mean, although Fauci will use these rhetorical gymnastics when he's in the witness chair in front of doctor or sorry, in in front of Senator Paul, that at the time, the experimentation that the lab was engaging in did not technically qualify as gain of function. As we've seen, Paul's Senator Paul has really nailed Dr. Fauci on that. And uh, it's quite clear to anybody. (laughs) <laughs> with um, just like basic critical thinking or comprehension skills, that uh, it was gain of function research.
1: So uh, we're we're out of time, Caroline. But last question for you: Have we heard the last of this, or will th- will these emails drive more investigation into what was known, when it was known, and why it wasn't fully explored with the American people?
8: Well, every time there's a new kind of email dump like this we go back to the senate and we do another round of hearings so i i do not think this is the end by any means um it's it, it just just it's, give it time <laughs>
1: okay caroline downey thanks so much for joining us
8: thank you all
1: right coming up folks a minority owner for the nba golden state warriors is taking heat for saying the uyghurs in china why, it doesn't matter well we'll talk about it next
9: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: You are listening to Washington Watch, and I am so glad that you are. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, um, a couple of topics that I want to cover, but I, I want to go back to the education issue for just a moment. Um, the Michigan Democrats, the Democratic Party, um, went after parents, and I, this was a post, they've now taken this post down, and I'm. Uh, this is from a Fox News piece. The Democratic Party uh, put up a post uh, on Saturday on their official Facebook page criticizing parents who want to play a role in what public education teaches their children. Now, the post was deleted yesterday after they took a little bit of criticism, and rightfully so, but I just want to read this to you, because I, I don't think that these these are these types of statements, just like the, uh, the former or uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who was uh, the candidate running for the Democratic – the Democratic candidate running against Glenn Youngkin, made the comment that parents don't have a right to speak into education. I don't think those are slip-ups. I think it's just they're being candid. And I think we're seeing more and more of this because of the arrogance of the left. And here's the statement. This was was the Democratic Party in Michigan had this on their Facebook page. Not sure where this parents should control what is taught in in school because they are our kids is originating. But parents do have the option to send their kids to a hand-selected private school at their own expense if this is what they desire, the post read. It went on to say this. Now, get this. The purpose of public education— in public schools is not to teach kids only what parents want them to be taught, the Mission Democratic, Michigan Democratic Party post-continued. It is to teach them what society needs them to know. The client of the public school is not the parent, but the entire community, the public, end quote. You talk about socialism. Um I've got news for you. It's the parents who pay the taxes that fund our public schools. We have public schools because we have taxpayers and we've decided – well, I didn't decide it, but I think public education is one of the worst things that's happened to this country in the last 50 years because the left has taken over. This is the mindset. We see it repeatedly. These are not mistakes. These are admissions. These are very telling candid statements of their commitment. So I think, look, I am so thrilled to see what parents are doing across the country getting involved in education. Glenn Youngkin would not be governor of Virginia if it were not for parents, I think primarily in Loudoun County, that got the ball rolling. And you can do the same in your community. I think education needs to be at the forefront of the conversation. Parents, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, God gave parents the responsibility. And he gave them the responsibility to teach their children and to train them up in the way they should go. And they are the ones. You cannot – you you can delegate the authority, but you cannot delegate the responsibility. You can let the public schools teach, but God will hold you accountable. And ultimately, as parents, we're the ones uh, that will – either rejoice because our children made the right decisions, or we will uh, mourn because they did not, because they were misdirected and misguided by the indoctrination of the schools. So this is the moment. Be involved. All right. Another topic I want to hit on very quickly uh, is this past Sunday was uh, Religious Freedom Day. Now, in his proclamation for the day, President Biden wrote this. He says, in my life, faith has always been a beacon of hope and a calling to purpose as it is for so many Americans, and I believe that protecting religious freedom is as important now as it has ever been. We must continue our work to ensure that people of all faith or none—and I'm not sure why we throw that in there on Religious Freedom Day—are treated as full participants in society, equal in rights and dignity. We can only fully realize the freedom we wish for ourselves by helping to ensure liberty for all." Uh, Joining me now to talk about what has been accomplished or what has been diminished under the first year of the Biden administration as it pertains to religious freedom is David Clausen, director of FRC Center for Biblical Worldview. David, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Tony. So let's just start with this fundamental question. So why is Religious Freedom Day and religious freedom so important in our day and age?
10: Yeah, so important, religious freedom, uh, the freedom to believe what you want to in terms of doctrine and theology, and the freedom to order your life in accordance with those uh, deeply held beliefs. It's not just freedom of worship, the idea that you can believe what you want to in the four walls of your church or synagogue or mosque, but the ability to live your life according to those deeply held values. And this country, since 1993, actually, Tony, has acknowledged the importance of our first freedom uh, by having Religious Freedom Day. And so ever since 1993, every president will issue a proclamation uh, really just underscoring why this freedom is so important. And I I read uh, the president's proclamation. He had some good things in there. He he rightfully noted that religious freedom is the cornerstone of this nation. Uh, He went on to say that it's a vital aspect of our American character. But you read rhetoric like that and you look at what he's done in the last year. And it's really hard to get excited about what he's what let's, he says when he's done the exact opposite. Well, let's
1: talk about that. Let's talk specific policies because you're right. Rhetoric in, in our rhetoric, you know, we can say things, but let's talk about policies. That's what matters. It's what how we govern. So, how is this administration doing
10: when it comes to religious freedom in America? Yeah, not well, Tony. And I think the the best way to put it succinctly is that you've seen religious freedom really be deprioritized and supplanted and replaced by a focus on LGBT activism, really. Uh, So just for example, on uh, the day day he was inaugurated, uh, he puts out an executive order saying that across the federal bureaucracy, uh, the Bostock decision that recognizes gender identity, sexual orientation is now going to be applied wherever you see the word sex appear in federal statutes. Uh, Last year, he issued an executive order establishing a White House Gender Policy Council uh, to make sure that the LGBT rights movement is being advanced in federal policy. Uh, one other thing, uh, there's, there's memorandums and executive orders all over the place. Uh, he dismantled uh, President Trump's White House Faith and Opportunity Initiative, replacing it with an initiative uh, that, again, is going to really try to look at LGBT issues. Uh, so, And one other thing, Tony, is uh, he made sure that uh, we didn't have a, a ministerial Uh, for advancing religious freedom abroad which we had under the previous administration under Mike Pompeo. So it seems that every turn unfortunately, uh, rather than focusing on religious freedom which is protected in our Constitution, uh, LGBT activism and the LGBT agenda has risen to the forefront of this administration.
1: Well, to that point the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, made very clear that there, as he sees it, there's no hierarchy of rights uh, where the previous administration made very clear that religious freedom was the number one priority, especially in our foreign policy.
10: Oh, and, and again, concre- you know, uh, the president can say what he wants in this proclamation, but action speaks a lot louder than words. And again, under the uh, previous administration, uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just really, uh, and you were a part of the the ministerial that they had, really raising to the forefront Uh, making sure that religious freedom is being protected abroad. And this administration, instead, they put out a memorandum making sure that United States diplomacy and foreign assistance is focused on the rights of LGBT folks. That's a memorandum that the president put out last February. So, again, it's just a really inverting of, uh, you know, our Constitution protects religious freedom. Uh, President Trump did a marvelous job making sure that that was a priority of of his administration. It seems the, the current president... Uh, does not at all have the same priorities. Yeah.
1: Well, we'll be talking more about that as we uh, take a look further at the policies of this administration after the yeah. first year. David Clausen, always great to talk with you. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for coming in. All right. Speaking of religious freedom, yesterday the Public Relations Department at the NBA's Golden State Warriors put out a statement distancing the team from the uh, the co-owner, Chathamath uh, Palahapatiya who has uh, been taking heat for comments he made Saturday on his pod- on a podcast proclaiming nobody cares about the Uyghur minority in China that is suffering under the Chinese Communist Party. Play that clip again, please.
2: Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay?
1: You you bring it up because you really what? care, and I think what that's mean, nice that cares? you care.
2: The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you a care? very hard— are saying you, you personally very, don't care? I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth, okay? Of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. OK, oh, of all the things that I care about, it is below my line. Disappointing.
1: With me now to talk about this is Nuri Terkel. He is the chair of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, who also serves alongside me at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom as the vice chair. Nuri, welcome to Washington Watch.
11: Thank you for there. Thank you very much for having me, Tony. So nobody cares. Um, you know,
1: I see a lot of people that care about what's happening to the Uyghurs.
11: I, I know you do care, and that's why you get sanctioned. So, uh, so this, this guy's uh, notion that uh, the civilized world does not care about a persecuted religious minority, uh, is, is, it false in its face. But also it's, uh, it explains, uh, describes the emblematic problem that we have in uh, the business community, sports world, as well as Hollywood, uh, when it's convenient uh, to criticize our government for, for that matter. They're just ready uh, and, and available to criticize because there's no cost for them. But when it comes to uh, criticizing uh, communist China uh, for the ongoing genocide against the Uyghur people, they just dance around and try to play this uh, whataboutism card, which is, I think, despicable.
1: So, Nuri, let's talk about this for a moment. What is happening? Just remind our listeners what is happening to the Uyghurs in China.
11: Uh, since the uh, since late 2016, uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, formulated and executed an expanding. Uh, modern-day uh, 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 genocidal campaign, uh, locking up up to 3 million uh, Uyghurs, according to the Pentagon, in a uh, industrial-scale concentration camps. Not only uh, that they've been engaging in this kind of uh, massive uh, uh, concentration camp uh, uh, system built, they're also engaging in uh, forced sterilization uh, and enslavement of the Uyghurs uh, to use them in a... Uh, Uh, forced labor uh, uh, factories that are feeding the global uh, consumer market. So essentially, the Chinese government uh, has been engaging in this collective uh, massive uh, punishment of this particular religious group. Uh, In addition to that, they are uh, also using uh, forced labor, uh, slave labor, uh, to uh, pollute the global economic system. The most disturbing aspect of uh, what's happening to the Uyghur people involves children. Uh, uh, Based on credible reports, uh, close to 800,000 Uyghur children have been taken away from their family members and sent to the state-run orphanages. Uh, And also based on the open source information that the Chinese government uh, itself provided, uh, there have been the forced sterilization and deliberate, purposeful prevention of uh, natural growth in the Uyghur population. In 2019, 2020 alone, the population decline in the Uyghur homeland is about uh, 25%. So, based on these facts, based on these available information, based on the uh, camp survivor account and uh, witness account, uh, the United States government, uh, Secretary Pompeo, uh, declared. Uh, in uh, last January that uh, those atrocity crimes uh, amounts to genocide and uh, crimes against humanity, which is uh, confirmed by the new administration, the Biden administration. So this is a bipartisan position by the United States government. Uh, To this day, over 100 uh, punitive sanctions have been announced against individuals and entities that have been responsible for the ongoing genocidal campaign against the Uyghur people.
1: So, Nuri, what's the issue with the NBA? Why are they afraid to take a stand on behalf of the Uyghur people against the Chinese Communist Party?
11: So it's a commercial interest, mostly. Um, so, I, you know, based on uh, what happened to the, um, the manager of the Houston Rockets uh, a couple of years ago, when he tweeted in support of the Hong Kong democracy activists, a Chinese punished. So the business community caved in, uh, specifically NBA, caved into the Chinese pressure and uh, instructed uh, their business um, uh, uh, partners, uh, such as this guy uh, who made a big fool of himself uh, uh, over the weekend, uh, to, to do the bidding for the Chinese government. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a uh, gut-checking, um, uh, soul-searching moment for uh, people in, in, uh, in the free societies to ask themselves, um, do we operate our businesses, do we go about with our lives Based on what Beijing thinks of us or Beijing tells us, this is, in fact, this is a atheist uh, communist regime. Uh, so the American business community, particularly the corporate America, uh, the athletic community, and also American academia, need to uh, need to do need to get onto the right side of the history. The history will not be kind to them.
1: Final question for you, uh, Nuri. What can the average American, those across this country that are watching and listening to this, what can they do?
11: Three things that the average Americans can do. Uh, One, uh, lending their voice, just like the way that uh, the uh, uh, condemnation is is outpouring uh, on this guy. And and support has been uh, enormous uh, to the Uyghur people, especially in the social media in the last few days. The Uyghur, the word Uyghur was trending Uh, on social media yesterday. That kind of public support is is needed. And then two, as a consumers, we have so much um, in our hands that we can pressure uh, consumer uh, consumer, uh, through consumer activism to pressure the businesses to do the right thing. And then third, we should call on our government, uh, the White House, the Congress, to put in additional, uh, uh, enhance the legal tools and put in additional uh, resources. And finally, uh, we need to ask our government to, um, if they have a policy. Uh, this genocide it's in, is in its uh, fifth year. Uh, we have not heard from either our government or our traditional allies and partners if they have any willingness to stop the genocide. As a state party to the genocide convention, uh, more than 150 countries have a responsibility to call it out, yeah. stop it, and punish. So we have, not, we have only about seven countries around the world have taken a position yet, which is uh, disturbingly uh, a sad situation.
1: Mary Turkle, I want to thank you for joining us. You're a courageous man, and I I appreciate you greatly. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Tony. Folks, thank you for joining us as well, and take those action steps. And uh, again, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, you know what to do. Just keep standing. Three seven two seven two three four. That's one 372 7234